0: So, uh, how many people here know who Mike Wallace is? Dave Reese should know because he's on his fantasy football team. Mike Wallace is a wide receiver for the Pittsburgh Steelers. He, uh, he went to college in Mississippi, at Mississippi, and he's been in the NFL for three years now. If you follow football at all, you may have seen that Mike Wallace has made some, uh, some pretty significant claims lately. In an interview, he told the press that he plans to get 2,000 receiving yards this season. He's even got the math all figured out. He says, well, if I, if I average 20 yards a catch, and I catch 100 passes, then at the end of the season, I'll have 2,000 yards. His math is right. You know, he's not wrong about that. But I think he's a little bit naive, and this is why. There's, there's two reasons. The first is that he plans to get 100 catches. Well, Last season, the ball was only thrown to him 98 times. And of those 98 uh, passes, he only caught 61%. That means that this season, Ben Roethlisberger is going to have to throw the ball to him 164 times for him to get uh, 100 catches. Probably not going to happen. Almost one and a half times, or or over one and a half times, how many times he threw to him last year. In addition to that, is the fact that no one ever in the history of the NFL has gotten 2,000 receiving yards in a single season. Not Jerry Rice, not Isaac Bruce, not Randy Moss. No one ever in an NFL season has gotten 2,000 yards. Mike Wallace says he's going to do it this year. Personally, you know, I, I hope he doesn't, just so Dave doesn't beat me into fantasy football. But I also think it's unlikely. But statistics aside, the only way we'll know whether or not he's going to back up what he said is how he performs this year on the field. He's, he's made these claims, and now we have to wait and see whether he's going to back them up in action. In Jesus' day, the people that have listened to him give the Sermon on the Mount. To them, he would have made even more outlandish claims than Mike Wallace is making regarding football. Jesus said that he is a greater authority than the Old Testament law. He said he's the one who rightly understands it. He said he's the one who fulfills it. He said that he's the one who is going to usher in the kingdom of heaven. He said, I'm proclaiming that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So Jesus is, is claiming all these things. All these people are listening to him. And last week we saw at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew tells us that the people are astonished at his teaching. They're shocked at these claims that he makes. They're shocked at this authority that he seems to think that he has. And this week, we're going to see Jesus come down off the mountain. The crowds are going to follow him. follow him, And they're wondering whether he's going to back up the claims that he's made. They're wondering if he's going to demonstrate this authority that he says that he has. And Matthew spends chapters 8 and 9 showing us that he does that. Way back before we started the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 4... He gives us this kind of threefold picture of what Jesus' ministry is like. In verse 23, says this: "And he, Jesus, went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction among the people." We've spent like the last seven months going through the Sermon on the Mount, going through chapters five, six, and seven. We've seen Jesus teaching and preaching. The next two chapters, 8 and 9, we're going to see him healing these diseases. We're going to see him healing afflictions. And Jesus is going to prove that he has authority over everything. Authority over illnesses, authority over creation, authority over demons. And he's even going to show us that he has authority over death itself. So let's read our text tonight at the beginning of Matthew 8. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some at the end of the rows And you'll find tonight's passage in those Bibles on page 813. We're going to be reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. Verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will... You can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The main point of this passage, what Matthew is trying to show us in chapters 8 and 9, is that Jesus' authority is real? He, he backs up what he says. He is the Messiah. And his healing ministry proves that. His healing ministry shows that he is the one who can make these claims. So look at this first little chunk here in verses 1 through 4. Jesus comes down from the mountain, and, and there's crowds with him. These crowds are following him. And not long after he comes down the mountain, this leper comes to him. Now, leprosy is this disease that the Jews are scared of. They don't understand it. They're afraid of it. It's not this this one disease like it is today. It's a collection of these skin conditions that they can't explain. They don't know of any healing for this disease other than the, the intervention of God himself. He's the only one that can heal it. And a lot of times, when someone has leprosy, they believe that they have it because they are cursed by God. Something that they did caused God to give them this disease. In addition to all that, the lepers had to, had to live by themselves. They couldn't touch anyone. No one could touch them. No one really wanted to be around them. It was this gross, disgusting, unclean disease. And the Jews didn't want anything to do with it. And so he comes and he kneels down before Jesus. And you can just kind of imagine the crowds backing away from Jesus, backing away from this man before him, because because they don't want what he's got. Notice what the leper says to Jesus. He says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. This shows us that this leper knows who Jesus is. He's he's heard about his healing ministry. He's heard what he's done. He He doesn't question whether or not Jesus can do it. He says... if if you want to. If you decide to do this for me, you can do it. He places his faith in Jesus and asks him to do it. And look at what happens next. This is really important. It says Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus touches this leper, this leper who, who probably hadn't experienced the touch of another person in a very long time. And Jesus touches him. And I can imagine, as this happens, the crowds gasp. They're shocked that Jesus has touched this person. Some people maybe even thought, well, this ministry didn't last very long. He touched this guy, and now he's done. He's he's unclean just like he is. He's got to go away from everyone just like he does. He's not going to survive this. In the book of Leviticus, it says this about leprosy. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. So these lepers have to, to wear torn clothing, you know, long, crazy hair, and walk around, and everywhere they go, they have to cover their mouth and say, unclean, unclean. And they had to do this so that everyone would know that someone with leprosy was there. So they wouldn't accidentally touch them. So they wouldn't accidentally get infected and become unclean themselves. And so this guy comes to Jesus, and Jesus willingly touches him. Now everybody would have known that when something that's unclean comes into contact with something that's clean, it becomes unclean. It never works the other way. Ever. Whenever the unclean touches the clean, the clean becomes unclean. But in Matthew, we see something different. In Matthew, Jesus touches this leper. He touches this man who is unclean, who's been told that he's unclean by everyone. And immediately, Matthew tells us, immediately, he becomes clean. We see the same thing in the gospel we see jesus come into the world as a child as, as a human child he takes on flesh he undergoes temptation struggle humanity he experiences everything that we experience and yet he remained clean through it he took on flesh which is unclean and he remained clean and even though He lived a perfect life despite His humanity, we know what happens. We know that He's punished as if He is unclean. And on the cross, Jesus does for us exactly what He does for this leper in Matthew 8. He takes on all of our uncleanness. He takes it all on. And He makes us clean. The Father takes away our impurities, takes away our uncleanness and makes us clean. When Jesus touches the leper, he becomes clean like him, not not the other way around. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them We need to answer two questions about this verse. The first question is, why does Jesus tell this guy to be silent? He's just done this amazing thing. Everybody there would have been completely shocked by what he did. And he tells the guy not to tell anyone. Why? Why not advertise that? Why not print up a postcard and send it to all the addresses in Capernaum and tell them what's going on? It's because Jesus doesn't want to be seen as a guy who just works miracles. That's not what he wants to emphasize. That's only a small part of his mission as the Messiah. He doesn't want to be known for that. He doesn't want people to follow him for those reasons. He wants people to follow him because he's bringing in the kingdom of God. Because he's proclaiming repentance and forgiveness. And that's what his goal is to bring. Think about how that lines up with the people today who we see preach health, wealth, and prosperity. Jesus didn't emphasize his miracles. He downplayed them. He didn't start up a television ministry or go on a tour around the world healing everyone or at least claiming to. Jesus told people to be quiet, not say anything. This is because he didn't want it to distract from who he was. He didn't want it to distract from what he was there to do. And so, if and when the miraculous happens in our world today, we should expect it to happen in a similar way. We should expect it to happen in a way that draws attention to who Jesus is as our Savior, as our Redeemer. And not on the fact that some person got healed. Or... The Holy Spirit supposedly worked through this person who healed them. If the miraculous happens, it should always bring glory to Christ. And not to the miracle that's done. The second question we should ask about verse 4 is, why did Jesus tell this guy to do what the law says? We've seen him in the Sermon on the Mount say that that he's the fulfillment of the law. He said over and over again, you've heard it said, but I say to you. But here in Matthew 8, he tells the guy, do what the law says. Go to the priest. Present yourself to them. Give give the gift you're supposed to give. He tells them to submit to the law. Why? In this passage, we see Jesus doing two things. Two things in connection with the law. The first is he shows us that he transcends the law. Jesus shows us that, that he's better He's greater. He's more significant than the law. He does this because we've already seen how Leviticus says when someone who's clean touches a leper, he becomes unclean. But that didn't happen to Jesus. The law says that's what should happen, the law says that's the way it works. But Jesus says, no, it doesn't work that way. I touch this man and I make him clean. And that shows us that Jesus is more significant than the law. He can do what the law says shouldn't happen because He's greater than the law. The law is under His authority, not the other way around. And when He he sends this guy to the priest, He's showing that the law validates who He is. See, this guy goes to the priest. He gives the gift. And the priest looks him over, checks him out. He's he's seen whether or not this man has actually been healed. Whether or not this man is actually clean, if he can return to the people, if it's really happened. Jesus uses the law to show that he has really done what he said he did. He uses the law to show that Jesus is clean and this man is clean. And so essentially what verse four is saying, Jesus has cleansed the leper. Jesus has healed this man. The priest says it. The law says it. Jesus is who he says he is. Let's look at this next healing. The centurion who comes to Jesus. So Jesus enters Capernaum, and this Roman centurion comes to him. And he says, I've got a servant who is sick. He's, he's paralyzed. He's suffering terribly. Now, a centurion is a a Roman military officer who's over 100 guys. He's got the servant who's sick, and he comes to Jesus. And just like in the story of the leper we just read, Jesus is willing to go heal this person. Jesus is willing to go to the centurion's house and and heal his servant. But the centurion interrupts him. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. He says, But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy... To have you come under my roof but only say the word and my servant will be healed for i too am a man under authority with soldiers under me and i say to one go and he goes and to another come and he comes and to my servant do this and he does it one of the first things we should see in this story is this centurion's humility he's a guy who is used to people being intimidated by him He commands a hundred soldiers. They're at His disposal. They do what He says. And so when He's in the land, when He's in Galilee, people are scared of Him. They respect Him. They're intimidated by Him. And yet when He comes to Jesus, He doesn't act that way. He doesn't act entitled. He doesn't command Jesus to come to His house and heal Him. He submits to Jesus' authority. He recognizes it. He sees it. And we should do the same thing. When we come to God in worship, when we come to God in prayer, when we read the Word, when we study the Bible, we should recognize that God has an authority that we don't have. He's over us. His Word is over us. Always. We should be humble like this centurion and not act like we're entitled. Not like we deserve it. Not like God needs something from us. He doesn't need anything from us. We need everything from Him. And the centurion recognizes that. And what he shows, or what he says to Jesus, he shows that he understands authority. He's this military man who surely has has been in this life forever. And he gets the concept of authority. He gets that Jesus is demonstrating His authority. He explains it. He says, you know, I, I tell somebody to do something, and they do it. And that's because he recognizes that he, too, is a man under authority. He knows that he's under the authority of the emperor. He's in Galilee because the emperor told him to be in Galilee. And if one of his soldiers doesn't do what he says, he's not just defying the centurion. He's defying the emperor. That's the way it works. I'm not in the military. But if you defy the order of your commanding officer, you're not just defying his order. You're to find his order and all the authority that he possesses as a representative of the military. And that's exactly what's happening here. The centurion understands this concept. And what it shows is that he has faith that Jesus is who he says he is. He knows that Jesus possesses the authority that he possesses because God has given it to him. God who created the world, who everything in creation is under his authority including this illness this illness that this centurion servant has and so he knows because Jesus is under that authority if he says that illness needs to be healed it will be healed because it will obey him because it's under his authority and so he doesn't even want him to come into his house he recognizes that Jesus can heal his servant just through his word Because his word is the same thing as God's word. His word carries all the authority that the creator has. So he knows. He just has to say the word. And his servant will be healed. Let's look at how how Jesus responds to what he says. Matthew tells us that when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, Jesus is having this conversation with the centurion. The centurion says what we just saw him say, and he turns. Jesus turns and addresses the crowds, these people who are following him. He's going to use this moment to teach them something. And he says that nowhere in Israel, all the Jewish people he's encountered, he hasn't seen faith like this centurion has. And he says people are going to come from all over the place, from the east and the west. He's not just talking, you know, geographical places. He's saying from everywhere, from, from the ends of the earth. People are going to come, and they are going to celebrate the, the full arrival of the kingdom of God with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is going to happen. He says, but the sons of the kingdom aren't going to be there. They're going to be left out. And this this phrase, sons of the kingdom, it's it's an ironic name for the people of Israel. You see, they actually are descendants of Abraham. They're descendants of Isaac. They're descendants of Jacob. They're these people who are are the sons of the kingdom. They're supposed to be part of the kingdom because they're related to them. Jesus says they're going to be left out. They're going to be left out. And what Jesus is hinting at here is He's hinting at this this idea that's going to get developed further in the New Testament. And that's that being in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. It's not just about genetics anymore. It's not just about who you're related to or who you're not related to. Or whether or not you're actually a descendant of Abraham. Jesus commends this centurion not because of who His grandparents were. He commends him for his faith. That's what matters now. The the Gentiles, people from everywhere, are going to be included because of their faith, not because of who they're related to. And we should be excited about that because most of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. I'm not a descendant of Abraham, and most of you probably aren't either. And so this shift is starting to happen. We're starting to see this change in the New Testament where faith is more important than who you're related to. It's more important than what your lineage is. What's starting to happen is that who Jesus is is what's important and not who we are. And what Jesus says here about this this place This this outer darkness where, where people are going to go if they don't have this faith that he's talking about. He doesn't describe hell very much. He doesn't say that much about it. But what he does say is that it is a real physical place. And there is real physical suffering there. So... You know, arguments for the existence or non-existence of hell aside, it doesn't matter. Jesus says it's a real place. And he's proving in this text that he has the authority to say those things. In verse 13, Jesus gives this centurion the word that he wants. He says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And Matthew says, and the servant was healed at that very moment. Just like with the leper, where it happened instantly. Where Jesus' authority in his touch is shown instantly. He shows to the centurion that he has authority with his word, and it's just as instant if he touched someone. He has authority, and he's showing it. Let's look at this third healing in verses 14 and 15. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she rose and began to serve him. So Jesus goes to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law's there, and the fact that he has a mother-in-law shows us that he was at least married at some point. mother in is sick, so Jesus heals her. And then it says she began to serve him. I don't really think that we should read a lot into that, as if you know, she's serving him because he healed her. I think that what we see here is, is this mother-in-law just kind of doing the thing that moms do. They serve people. They wait on people. They meet the needs of people. They're hospitable to their guests. I imagine when Peter's mom gets up, her saying something to Peter like, you mean you haven't offered him something to drink yet? Because that's what my wife always does when people come over and, and I don't think about those things. And most men don't think about those things. She gets well, she starts to serve. And then Matthew tells us what happens that night. He says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and he healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So all these people come to him. Jesus casts out demons. He heals the sick. He heals those afflicted. And Matthew says that these things happened to fulfill prophecy. That's why they happen. That's why he does it. Because he's fulfilling prophecy. He's fulfilling something that was spoken about him in the Old Testament. Specifically, Matthew's saying that Jesus fulfills what was spoken about him in Isaiah 53. Listen to this passage from Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. In our passage tonight, we see Jesus doing one small part of this. We see him taking up the infirmities of men. Taking up the sorrows of men. He's he's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's making people's quality of life better by being there and healing them. We've seen him make the unclean clean. We've seen him in the suffering of this this paralyzed servant. We've seen him cast out demons. We've seen him heal all these afflictions from from this, this fever that Peter's mom has to the the most disgusting, uh, unknown disease like leprosy. He he heals all of them, no matter how common or how bad. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus does these things, he's fulfilling the mission that God has for him. He's fulfilling the, the plan that God set out for him in the Old Testament. And Isaiah tells us that there's more to this mission than just healing the sick more than healing our infirmities and taking on our sufferings and our sorrows. More than just that, Isaiah tells us there's a whole lot more to this picture. Isaiah tells us this, following verse 4. He says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the main part of Jesus' mission. This is why he downplays his healing. Because he wants to emphasize this part. Because the same Jesus who who heals in Matthew 8 and 9 is the guy who dies on the cross in Matthew 27. And he knows that's coming. He knows that that's what he's here for. Healings just demonstrate that he is that person, that he is the Messiah who's going to accomplish that mission. And Isaiah tells us why he does that, why he dies. He says it's for our iniquities, for our sin, for what we've done. He's punished. His punishment brings us peace. His wounds heal us. Even though it's us. It's all of us who who have rebelled against God, who have rejected God, who have despised God. Even though we deserve the punishment, Isaiah tells us that it's put on Him. For us. In Matthew... Eight and nine, and the gospel as a whole. We see Jesus carrying out this mission that Isaiah talks about you know, some hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. And tonight we've seen that Jesus really does have the authority that he claims to have. He shows it by healing people. He shows it by casting out demons. He shows it by healing this servant through his word. But That's just one small part of his mission. It's just one small part of who he is. And he doesn't want us to miss the bigger picture by the fact that these things are miraculous to us. More important than his purpose of of bringing physical healing is his purpose to bring us spiritual healing, to bring us reconciliation to God. And the Lord's Supper reminds us tonight. It should always remind us, but especially tonight. It reminds us that Jesus actually did die. He actually did undergo punishment for us on the cross. He died a violent and painful death. The cup shows us, it reminds us, that his blood was spilled. The bread that his body was broken. Isaiah tells us that he did these things for us. To bring us peace with God. Jesus has real authority. I think it would be hard to miss that. He has authority over my life, over your life. And all of us, every single person, no matter who we are, we are all going to experience that authority. We're either going to experience His authority by, by submitting to it and, and receiving the forgiveness and the redemption that he offers us, or we're going to be—we're going to experience his authority by being these people that he describes in this text. The people that he casts out, because that's him showing his authority over them. When when they reject him, he casts them out. The question for us tonight is: Are we going to be people who respond to his authority, who who worship him for his authority? who honor Him for His authority, who submit to it? Or are we going to be those people who foolishly reject it? Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You rule all of creation. That no part of it